Welcome to Doha Debates, where we explore an urgent issue from various sides and try to find common ground. Get ready for a conversation that's well-informed, spirited, civil, and respectful. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and I will be your moderator for this debate. Today, we're talking about government surveillance, the benefits and the costs. Now, this debate took on a whole new dimension in 2013 because of Edward Snowden, a former contractor for the U.S. government's National Security Agency. He exposed a program that had collected data from American phone calls. Now, the NSA is supposed to focus on foreign intelligence, not on spying on the United States. So that raised all new questions about government surveillance going too far. But things have gotten much more sophisticated since then. Facial recognition technology can identify people in photos almost instantly. A license plate reader can map out your daily movements. And closed-circuit TV is more abundant than ever. New York now has more than 25,000 cameras monitoring its streets. And according to Amnesty International, they are disproportionately placed in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Supporters of this technology might say these tools are necessary to keep everyone safe. Terrorism has changed the debate over surveillance in very big ways, as folks in New York very well know. Opponents might raise concerns over privacy and human rights abuses. China, for example, monitors internet searches and social media while expanding its use of facial recognition. More liberal democracies are also reckoning with mass surveillance. For example, last year, Belgium passed a data retention law which required internet providers and telecommunications companies to retain user data. The year before that, the EU's Court of Justice ruled that Belgium's prior data retention law violated privacy rights. So what is the proper role of mass surveillance? How do we balance individual privacy and collective safety? Let's get into all of that with today's guests. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Jamil Jaffer. He is the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University School of Law. Jamil Jaffer, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hey, Joshua. Glad to be here. Joining us from San Francisco is Cindy Cohen. She's the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on civil liberties in the digital world. Cindy Cohen, welcome. Thanks. And as always, we have a global listener who will have some questions for our panelists a little later in the debate. Before we begin, I have two ground rules. First, no personal attacks. We're here to pick apart the issue, not each other. Second, every question needs a direct answer. It's fine to think out loud, of course, but please don't pivot to another topic until you've answered the question at hand. And please, my personal pet peeve, don't answer a question with a question. If we're agreed on all that, Cindy Cohn, let me start with you. EFF has raised concerns for years about mass surveillance and the concerns over infringing on, infringing on human rights. Summarize for us why those concerns exist. Well, whether you're talking about in the United States as a matter of the Fourth Amendment or the First Amendment, or you're talking internationally with regard to freedom of expression or the need to have government activities be necessary and proportionate to the government's goals, mass surveillance violates those. It flips the ordinary idea that you are innocent until proven guilty on its head and basically puts all of us in a perpetual lineup. Um, the government's goal in terms of, let's just talk about the national security mass surveillance, is to collect it all, 
first and then sort out second what it is they actually need. This puts people's privacy rights, honestly, at the bottom of the list of things to do. It also impacts freedom of expression in terms of, you know, kind of a rights-based analysis. I think there are also serious questions about how effective this kind of surveillance can be at scale. If you're trying to spy on the entire world, you're not going to do it very well. And we see over and over again that in the context, again, of the American national security infrastructure, they can't do it very well. Even the rules that they put in place for themselves, which frankly are far too lenient for me and for what I think for in terms of human rights for people, they can't even stick to them. They get in trouble over and over again from the very limited review uh, that the secret FISA court does or the Congress does. So I think that it's time for us to acknowledge that mass surveillance is not only a problem for our rights, but I think there's a real question about whether the government, uh, at least the U.S. government, but I also think there's a problem internationally, can even do this at scale in a way that is even marginally consistent with our values. And I just want to clarify for viewers around the world, FISA, the term that Cindy Cohen referred to as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's an American law that requires certain kinds of intelligence to be regulated, including being approved by a specific judge before they can be enacted. Jamil Jaffer, I understand you share some of these concerns, but believe that surveillance technology can still, broadly speaking, be beneficial to society. Tell us why. Well, Joshua, I think that's exactly right. There are governments in the world that use their surveillance capabilities with reckless abandon and are hugely troubling. Frankly, to be honest with you, a lot of those governments are allies in Europe who claim to have concerns about privacy and the like and tend to be the most voracious collectors of intelligence. There are also our adversary nations, nations like China and Russia, that sweep up all the communications of countries, search it by keyword and the like. But what we've learned about at least American surveillance, as it turns out, is that's not how America conducts the surveillance. The National Security Agency, we now, we now have a tremendous amount more information than we ever have about American surveillance collection. We search for email addresses, phone numbers, and the like that are, that are specific targeted ones, a few hundred thousand of those, and that's what our government looks at. I can tell you American surveillance, under anybody's standards, Cindy's or anybody else's, just isn't mass surveillance as much as Cindy might want it to be, right, or might say it is. Like, the truth is, now that we have all the information, a few hundred thousand email addresses and phone numbers across the globe being surveilled, chances are you're probably not under surveillance by the U.S. government. Cindy, go ahead. I mean, I just like every single time the FISA court has looked at what the U.S. government is actually doing, they find that the difference between Mr. Jaffer's ideal world and what is actually happening on the ground is vast millions and millions of queries by the FBI alone infecting way more people than just who they're supposed to. We we discovered what they called it love ins, right? Uh, NSA officials doing searches on their, you know, exes to try to find out where they are. You know, so the the US government is not perfect at this. They're not even close to perfect at this. They have had to be scaled back over and over and over again. And again, I know this is a global audience. I think it's really important that we talk about the surveillance under executive order 12333 is the United States government granting it the ability itself the ability to spy on the entire world, which I think is very inconsistent from international law and not necessarily the way the rest of the world looks at people who are not citizens. But I think that the the idea that, you know, first of all, that that only the U.S. government would ever be able to do this and that they do it perfectly are just not borne out 
by the by the truth um, as it trickles out of what is an extremely secretive thing. I don't think we disagree at all that some of this stuff has to be secret. Um, but even in the context of an American warrant, eventually you have to tell the defendant that you did a wiretap and you have to show them the basis upon which you did the wiretap. And again, this is a situation in which in the national security context, the U.S. government has been very, very bad at doing that when they've done it at all. And there are serious concerns that lots of people have been prosecuted in the United States without being given fair notice that national security warrants were used at them. So, um, And in fact, it wasn't happening at all until the U.S. government got caught lying to the Supreme Court about it and had to kind of quickly change course and start giving some kind of notice, although it wasn't enough. So the level of secrecy that the government is demanding isn't really about protecting their operational things now. I think it's it's about preventing the American people from getting a clear enough view of this to be able to exercise their democratic rights to decide whether this is what they want the government to do and to block the courts. So I think there's a, there's a huge piece that we could do about blocking some of this opacity and making some of this more clear and transparency uh, is the best disinfectant before we get to the, you know, what are the names of the terrorists who they're tracking? And and we see the government overclaiming secrecy all over the place here. I do want to be clear also, when we talk about surveillance, just so everyone is clear, I am talking more about, for the sake of this debate, the kind of broad spectrum sweeping, just in case we catch something kind of monitoring, as opposed to, you know, this person is known to be a criminal. We want to get this kind of evidence to for this kind of case. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but for the purposes of this, we really are talking about kind of sweeping, broad data collection. That's kind of what the focus is of our conversation. Cindy, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's important that we also clarify terms. I think the difference is like, are you at the top of the funnel or perhaps at the bottom of the funnel to be kind, right? It's a different than a wiretap where you're tapping into one person who you've pre-identified and gotten a warrant. In my world, and I think actually in most people's world, this top of the funnel is mass surveillance. And we don't just look at the bottom of the funnel. We look at all the people who are impacted because there's a lot of trouble that can happen between the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. And we care about the ability to have a private conversation or to do private browsing online. And the fact that the government looks at it and then maybe decides not to target, maybe not, decides not to keep your communication still means that it's not private. Right. Because there is an, an initial time when they're taking a look and deciding if it's the thing they want to keep or not. So to me, and I actually think to most people around the world, that is mass surveillance and trying to reframe it as targeted surveillance by looking at the bottom of the funnel instead of the top of the funnel, I think ends up confusing people because they tend to think that oh, the only thing that's happening is a is something akin to a traditional wiretap where you go to a judge and you make a probable cause showing and you get a very specific order that lets you just look at the person who you've pre-identified. That's targeted surveillance. Mass surveillance is when you look at everybody and, you know, are you fishing with a, with a drift net? Or are you fishing with a line and a pole? And the kind of surveillance that EFF has been suing about since you know, frankly, way before Mr. Snowden showed up, I mean, uh, he did a tremendous service to all of us by presenting so much information that the government could no longer lie and say it wasn't happening. But the drift net fishing is something that we think is inconsistent with rights and that that fishing with a line and a pole, some surveillance can happen in the instance of a probable cause warrant, 
made, you know, under the Fourth Amendment with a judge, that's targeted surveillance. And the broader stuff is mass surveillance. So as, as long as we can agree on terms and we can agree or disagree about what we like, but I think we have to start by understanding the difference between what what Professor Jaffer said and what I'm talking about is, is, is pretty significant in terms of what's actually happening. Well, let me get deeper into that difference. Jamil Jaffer, let me come back to you with regard to that funnel. And we mentioned Edward Snowden. You have said before that the big takeaway from this incident was that the data collection was done without enough public scrutiny around the process and the way that it was done. But the NSA is a spy agency. Their job is to keep secrets. Is it even possible to do this with public scrutiny to make the funnel a little more like, I know I'm getting too deep into this metaphor, but more like a colander that is still able to do all of this filtering, but in a way that is not quite so opaque. It feels like the opacity of the process is kind of necessary for it to work at all. And it seems impossible to do it really with, with public scrutiny. Well, Joshua, it's a great it's a great question, and I think there is a way to do it um, with some amount of scrutiny, both public and non-public. Look, when we're talking about who the targets of surveillance are, um, we never reveal that publicly. We don't do that in the case of criminal surveillance, right? When you go get a warrant, you go to a federal judge, you're a U.S. attorney, and you go get a, a warrant uh, to surveil a, a criminal defendant or a, a criminal suspect, right? You don't tell that that criminal defendant that they're or suspect that they're under surveillance. You don't tell their attorney. It happens ex parte and in camera behind closed doors, just the lawyer for the government, just that federal judge approving the warrant. Same thing is true in the foreign intelligence surveillance context, right? We get orders for individuals uh, behind closed doors with a federal judge. That's for individuals in the United States or American citizens anywhere around the globe. They get an individualized warrant process because they have rights under the U.S. Constitution. When it comes to foreigners located, located outside the United States, that is to say non-Americans, they don't have rights under our Constitution. But nonetheless, we go through a process to get the surveillance overall approved for an entire year. And then individual targets get an individualized determination within the agencies. And so, you know, it turns out it's, it's great now that with Edward Snowden's revelations, unlawful, illegal, they may have been, that we are able to talk about this a lot better. And so it's important to talk about when we talk about this idea of mass surveillance, it is actually just like a colander. And so while it's true that all the water that goes through the colander goes through the colander, all that gets left behind and that's looked at are, is that pasta, right? That's in the top of the colander, the salad or whatever it is. I knew I carried this metaphor too far. I knew I went too far with it. <laughs> but here's the, here's the beauty of it, right, uh, Joshua, which is that, you know, to Cindy's point, we're not actually we're not actually looking at any of that water that's going through. What's being looked at are those targeted few hundred thousand email addresses, phone numbers, or the like that are under collection. So while we put the net in the stream, right? You have to you have to dip the net, whatever size the net is, whether it's a fishing line or a net. You got to put it in the ocean to catch the fish, right? That's certainly true. And I guess in some sense, you're filtering all the water in the global ocean through that net, right? All you're pulling out of the water that you actually, you know, put in the boat, right, or look at are those few hundred thousand selectors. So to me, even under the under what Cindy describes as the average American's understanding of, of filtering or or searching or or the like, that is targeted. We're not taking everything in the ocean and reviewing it. We're taking the information from a few hundred thousand selectors, cell phone numbers, and email addresses. That's what the government's looking at, even in its broadest collection program. Um, one of the problems of this is that the consequences of mass surveillance don't land even, evenly across our society. 
uh, it tends um, pretty much consistently every time we've looked at it to disproportionately affect marginalized people, people who already have a hard time having their voices heard or their needs considered or to be treated fairly by law enforcement. You know, facial recognition has had several incidents of mistaken identity. All of those are people of color. So it's not just that it's bad, it's that it's bad in a way that essentially hypercharges the discrimination that we're already trying to fight in our society. Let me ask you, Cindy, a little bit further about, and ask both of you actually, about some of the the principles underlying this, just to kind of pull us away from specifically U.S. or, or Western law and mores necessarily. I understand that you know everyone's going to view this slightly differently. Different countries have slightly different kinds of rules in terms of free speech and privacy and the proper role of government and so on. I think that the core arguments include that the adversaries of insert government here don't care about our lives, let alone our liberties, and that there is a reasonable realm in which it can be acceptable to subject people, you know, even in more covert ways to more surveillance as a way of catching adversaries we're not prepared for, of preventing things before they happen, that it would be better to apologize to you later. Hey, Josh, sorry, we went through your Facebook history through all the sites that you're a member of. We caught this person, but this happened. Sorry, it happened, but we saved some lives. That that would be preferable to hey, Joshua, I'm sorry we didn't go through your Facebook history to catch this person who ended up detonating a bomb that killed your parents. You know what I'm saying? Like that is the real world rationale behind some of the people who are within these intelligence apparatuses. And it's persuade, like if you can save mom's life and dad's life by kind of going through my post on Instagram, I can understand why someone might say that's a reasonable sacrifice. I know you don't, but I want you to explain why that's not a reasonable sacrifice. I mean, let's just start with, we're not living in an episode of 24, right? Like, I think that the argument that mass surveillance works in this way is a product of wishful thinking and um, frankly, too much TV. Um, Like, it doesn't work like that. And again, I think that right now, the people of Israel are discovering that the mass surveillance that they embraced and did didn't work in the way that they had hoped it would work. And that is a tragedy and a horror, but I think it does require us to think seriously about whether mass surveillance is actually working uh, in the real world, the way that it works when Keith Sutherland has a script that tells him how this kind of things works. So I think there is a serious question about whether it works in the way that you're talking about. And the fact that you can dream up a scenario in which your mother was saved is not the same thing as real intelligence and real thinking about what works and what doesn't work, especially again at scale, right? We're not talking about individual, uh, we're not talking about uh, systems of individual investigations here. We're talking about the, the massive top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel kind of idea, as opposed to I've got evidence that there might be somebody in who you're communicating with who is a spy and I want an individual warrant to go after that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a different kind of surveillance with a different kind of proposition. So I think I just want to be really clear about that because often we get these targeted stories, real targeted stories as a justification for something that isn't actually 
targeted at all. And I think the second thing is that, so I don't think it is work, but more importantly, we have to decide what kind of society we live in, right? If it makes you safer to have everybody who you're afraid of in jail, we still don't do that as a society, right? We make the people who are trying to keep us safe consistent with our values and abandoning our values because the people on the other side don't have values. I mean, that's just a race to the bottom in terms of people's rights and liberties and privacy. And as I mentioned, this is going to disproportionately affect marginalized people, not people who already have power in society. That's just how this works. So I don't think that this proposition, I think that this proposition is largely, it's informed by a lot of fantasy um, and that we need to put the intelligence community to its real paces. What we see in the debate right now in the United States about renewing Section 702 is cherry picked examples run past uh, the public without a broader view of what is this costing us? How often are they wrong? What is the, what is the cost of these kinds of things? And you, you really shouldn't let the people who want the power to continue to have the power to decide to tell you which, which of their stories are successes and which of their stories are not. All right. Now let's go to our global listener and get another question about mass surveillance. We are pleased to welcome Isra Fezulai. She's a journalism student at Northwestern University in Qatar, and her studies have included corporate surveillance. And she has a question about that for you, Jamil Jaffer. Isra, welcome. What's on your mind? Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Jamil, in your opinion, are there specific legal frameworks or oversights that can be put in place or that have been put in place uh, to prevent potential abuse of mass surveillance programs used by private companies or entities such as, you know, social media platforms? A very simple example is algorithms, ensuring that citizens' privacy rights are safeguarded uh, while addressing security concerns effectively. It's a great question and a really important one, Isra. You know, the, the general framework, at least in the United States, when it comes to the collection of information by private parties is individuals can either consent to or not consent to uh, the collection of information. I think the challenge with social media companies more often than not is that when you and I sign up for Facebook or you do a Google search or sign up for Gmail or the like, we consent to them reviewing our data. Right now, they have privacy policies and they have these long forms and nobody reads them. Right. We all just scroll through. Yes, yes, yes. We click go. Right. Because we want access to Gmail. Or we want access to Facebook or Instagram or whatever. But we are voluntarily giving our information to these companies. You know, there's this old saw that says if you don't know what the product is that somebody's selling you, it's because you're the product. Right. And what these companies do and the way they make money, right, is they collect our information. They learn about us and they sell that information to other people or they send us advertising. Right. I mean, how do we know this? Right. Oftentimes, at least back in the day when you'd read you'd read a Gmail between you and somebody else in email that came on Gmail between you and a friend, you'd start getting ads about that Gmail. We're talking about a vacation in you know Puerto Rico and you start getting ads about Puerto Rico. We all knew that was happening. We didn't. Some people didn't like it. Some people liked it, but we all kept using Gmail, right? We could go to a lot of other more privacy protective services uh, that don't do that. We're making a conscious choice. And in America, at least, uh, the rule is if you consent, that's your choice, right? And so there are frameworks in Europe. Uh, you have the, of the uh, general data protection regulations, GDPR, uh, that have provided a layer of, of what the Europeans call privacy rights on top of it. 
I'd ask people to really dig into that and see whether there are real privacy rights actually being effectuated. I don't think there are, to be candid with you. And frankly, the way the Europeans have used it, it's been a cudgel against American companies. It hasn't really protected the privacy of Europeans. All of us have to click through all sorts of banner ads on our web pages. But we all say yes anyways. We all, we all consent nine times out of 10. I happen to reject a lot of them. But I still end up, you know, going to that web page. They still collect some of my information because it's necessary, right? So I think GDPR in large part has been a total nothing burger. And the only thing it's really done is given Europe a tool to hit American companies over the head and not really successfully protect anybody's privacy. But, you know, there, there are these regimes that have propped up. But by and large, in the U.S., our view is if you consent, it's, it's your choice. Isra, let me come back to you and just get your reaction to that. And then, Cindy, I'll bring you back in. Isra? Yeah, that was very insightful, Jamil. I am studying um, journalism. I have a minor in uh, strategic communications where we learn a lot about the PR and marketing agencies. And something that those agencies use to their favor is a third party that is part of, uh, you know, kind of getting this information or research from from social media or let's say the, the, the hearing mechanisms of what people, you know, are looking for. And in that sense, are people consenting to that? Do you think that people know about this really, like when they are consenting to the social media usage? Yeah, it's a great question. It's hard to know whether people actually know what they're consenting to. And that may be part of the problem is people are saying yes, but they don't know what they're saying yes to. Now, it turns out that in a lot of these circumstances, you are consenting to these people that collected in the first instance, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Instagrams, whatever. You are consenting to them selling it to a third party that then aggregates it from multiple different sources and essentially can create a dossier on you, right? You know, you look at services like Lexus and ChoicePoint um, and the like, they have information from a variety of sources, all collected usually, as far as I know, with consent. And they're combining the data and then providing it to other people, right? Now, you'll hear people say, well, you know, that's not fair. That's not appropriate. And you could put constraints on those companies if you wanted to, right? But recognize that changes the business model and recognize that most people are saying yes to those things. Now, if we don't, if we want to inform people better, give them more information about what's being collected and why it's being collected, right? The Europeans have tried to do that with GDPR. I do worry that we're creating a lot of roadblocks and not really creating effective solutions that actually help people protect their own privacy, not informing them effectively. They're feel-good measures, and then they don't really do anything effective on the back end. Cindy, how do you see it? Um, I don't know that I disagree very much. Um, I think, well, I think I do about consent. I think it does violence to the definition of consent to say that people consent, given how little people understand and how badly written those terms of service are. I mean, when, you know, I went to law school, consent meant a meetings of the mind where you sit down and you both know what you're agreeing to and you sign on. These are, these are one-sided contracts, not written in your favor, very unclear about what's happening. And I think you're right to talk about the data brokers, right? The, not the people who collect it in the first place, but the people behind it who are shadowy and less able to spot who are doing a lot. Now, we just passed a data broker bill in California right now. We also have a comprehensive, we have a privacy law. We'll see. Um, EFF has supported a much stronger kind of privacy law than the one in California, the one in the EU, and even one nationally, kind of working in a slightly different way than just giving people a whole lot more click-throughs, but more actually limiting some of the pieces of the surveillance business model. You know, the 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 kinds of algorithmic decision-making that is based upon tracking every single thing you do and then trying to predict what you're going to do next requires a lot more data than just, you know, I'm, I'm searching for shoes on my favorite search engine and an ad for shoes comes up. So the difference between contextual advertising, which is the, the shoe example I gave you, and the kind of predictive advertising 
is is a difference that we could decide that we don't like that business model that it causes more harm than than is good it doesn't kill it's not going to i don't think it's going to kill the internet the marginal difference in terms of ad revenue between these two kinds of advertising has been demonstrated by actually some folks at george mason and elsewhere to be pretty small um, but we would gather a lot more of our privacy back, a lot more of the skeevy, nasty things that are happening in the data broker world would go away if we just drew that line. And I think we can draw that line. So that's one of the things that EFF has advocated for. There are a bunch of proposals for how to regain our privacy, but I think that we've we've let this fiction that people are consenting to things that are really not what people would do if they had real choices. And we're interpreting the fact that people feel like they don't have very many and very good choices as consent to the world as it is for far too long. And it's time to actually change course. And the good news is we have lots of ideas about how to do that. Let's wrap up today's discussion with a few more areas where our two panelists hear some agreement. And I've already heard a few points of agreement between the two of you. It seems like a lot of, at least the bulk of what you disagree on is about kind of the way that these surveillance or, you know, oversight or law enforcement tools are implemented. But there are a lot of overlaps, at least in terms of some of what I've heard you both say. Cindy, let me stick with you as we wind down. Where do you hear some areas of agreement on this issue? Well, I mean, I think that we agree that American values, actually international human rights values are important and they can't be tossed aside because of the the things of today. And I, I really appreciate that. That is something uh, that I think people in government and people like me who are often trying to hold them to account always can agree on that rule of law is important, rules are important, and that the fact that the people who we might be trying to fight don't have values is no reason for us to put them on the shelf. So I think that's that's an area where there's broad agreement. And then, then we can, you know, once we have that, then we can begin to talk about what the rules ought to be. And Jamil Jaffer, before we go, areas where we have some agreement or overlap? Yeah, look, I think I think Sydney and I agree on that you have to look at both the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel to understand what is it that funnel is doing, right? I think we just disagree about what the top of it looks like. Is it the whole ocean that you're dipping the net in, or is it just the fish that are going through the net and that are getting caught in the net that we're talking about? I think it's it's that simple a distinction. But I think we agree that you've got to understand both of those things and and share a commonality of viewpoints on that. And I think at the end of the day, what really matters here, right? is that the, the rule of law matters and operating under the rule of law. Whether you think the rule of law is perfect or not, that's that's a debate that we can have, but we can only have those in societies under constructs where people believe in the rule of law and believe in separation of powers, and those things are actually implemented in a serious and effective way, and I think we both agree on that as well. Jamil Jaffer and Cindy Cohn, I appreciate you both being here for a terrific debate. We have worked our way through funnels and colanders and nets and pipes. We've gone through the whole hardware store today. But I think that there have been some really worthwhile points in terms of the values that we hold or we say we hold and how we enact those values within the sense of a rule of law of human rights. And I think you've helped us really dig into some of those fine points very, very clearly. Thank you both for a great debate. And to our global listener, Isra Fezulai, best of luck to you at Northwestern. And thank you also for making time for us. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producers include Ashley Westerman, TJ Raphael, Claudia Tatey, and Katrine Dermody, and James Wally. FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Jafet Weeks, Amjad Atala, and 
Jigar Meta. You can explore our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more online at Doha Debates. That's D-O-H-A Debates.com. If you like this program, please follow the podcast and write us a review to help other people find the show. And be sure to check out my podcast, The Nightlight with Joshua Johnson, a program about democracy, culture, and solving the problems we share. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for listening.